morning, everybody. It's great to, to see you all here. I'm thankful again for this opportunity to come and open God's word to you guys. It's, I'm also thankful to our U.S. government for giving Joe jury duty this week, which gave me the opportunity to, to have this chance this morning. So I can thank them as well. Um, I want to begin our message by uh, briefly introducing you to a man named Solomon and, and, his re- and sharing his response to a sad, life-altering event that took place in his life. Uh, Solomon lives in the country of Nigeria, in western, uh, western Central Africa, and he lives in the state of Taraba, which is a beautiful highland country uh, with very moderate temperatures, lots of forests, not what you typically think of when you think of Africa. Um, and Solomon grew up there in a regular Nigerian village, just a regular, a regular place. He's part of a, a normal family, and his family was a Christian family. I was a Christian family. Nigeria is about 50% Christian and about 50% Muslim. It's a very unique nation in, in that sense, where there's a, a two different religions. Um, and, and he grew up in a Christian family and himself was a very solid Christian, part of a healthy, vibrant Christian church in his village. Well, a little over a year and a half ago, Solomon's life was radically changed when some uh, militant Islamists attacked his village. In the last six years, the group called Boko Haram, a militant Islamist group, has made it their goal to take over Nigeria and make it a 100% Muslim nation. And their attacks on, the, on villages and on Christians have escalated and have, just, have increased, and maybe you've heard about them in the news even. And there was an attack that happened a year and a half ago on Solomon's village. And what was surprising, though, is it wasn't the Boko Haram group, but it was his own neighbors, Muslims living in his village that were incensed and influenced by the Boko Haram group that that caused this attack, that led to this attack. Solomon said that he even recognized some of those attackers on him. Well, the the attack started. He heard gunfire, and he knew he had to get out of town. So he he grabbed his dad, and they quickly tried to escape out out uh, out of the village. But before they knew it, they were surrounded by a mob of angry Muslims. And these, these Muslims, they were, they were, they were angry, they were, they were mad, and, and they, they, they came up and they, they yelled at him and his dad, and they, they told him, you are Christian. This is the end of the road. You have only one choice left. Follow Islam. And uh, what happened next is, is too brutal for me to describe to you from up here, uh, so I won't. But Solomon's father refused, and he was murdered right before Solomon's eyes. They then turned to Solomon and said, we'll give you a chance. Convert to, convert to Islam. But Solomon resolutely stated, I will not deny Christ. The mob then doused him with gasoline and gave him one more opportunity to convert. But he would not. Somebody in the mob took a, an object and, beat, and hit him over the head, knocking him unconscious. And he fell to the ground. And then they took a running motorcycle and laid it on his back. And the, the, the flames from the engine, the engine ignited his, his soaked shirt, his gasoline-soaked shirt, and, and caught him on fire. And the, the group left him, left him for dead. But the, uh, the fire, as it, as, it, as it tore at his back, as it burned his back, woke him up. And he, by God's, he says, by God's strength, is able to push the motorcycle off and, and roll over into a ditch. And where he was rescued about 30 minutes later by the police. This is Solomon's story. Though he lost his father and suffered severe third-degree burns requiring multiple skin grafts, Solomon's faith is now stronger than ever before. Voice of the, uh, the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry 
they found him weeks after the attack, and they, they sought to meet his physical needs, and they helped him recover. They helped him with, with a surgery and things he needed to, to care for his physical wounds. But Solomon's spiritual wounds were already healed. Through God's grace, Solomon had no anger toward those who murdered his father and tried to kill him. He knows the sins that he himself had been forgiven from, and he willingly extended that same forgiveness to these attackers. He said this in an interview with Voice of the Martyrs. He said, If I have the opportunity of meeting them now, I would say the same thing Jesus said on the cross. Lord, forgive them. He paused and then said, I have forgiven them. Some people are called to forgive others for major atrocities such as these. And as with Solomon, the only way he could give this forgiveness is because of the experience of the forgiveness he experienced, the forgiveness he experienced from Christ. Perhaps you might suffer in a way like this and live to tell the story. You might, like Solomon, be able to testify of Christ's forgiveness by your own forgiveness of your offenders. If you want to know more about Solomon and how you can pray for him, he's a real-life individual still living today. If you want to know more about him, you can uh, go to persecution.com or look at the latest Voice of the Martyrs uh, magazine that they put out every month. It's the August issue. But all of us, all of us are called to forgive others, are we not? Some, you know, we, it, on a daily basis, we, we face opportunities to forgive others for what we might label as smaller smaller forgiveness for, over smaller sins. Uh, the ones that we face, right? They're, they're acts of forgiveness to maybe relatives who gossip behind their back. Or maybe if you're a student, maybe it's, it's forgiving your sibling for hogging the shower when you, and making you late to school again. Or maybe it's to your spouse when they were inconsiderate or, or rude or, or mean in some way. We all face this kind of forgiveness on an on a almost daily basis. We face various levels of offenses, and yet forgiveness extends to all levels. Forgiveness is not natural to people. Because of our fleshly sinful tendencies, right, mankind would rather seek revenge and forgiveness. This is how the world behaves. They hold grudges. They hate one another. And at worst, they get revenge. Sometimes they even murder. At best, unbelievers take their problems with another person and just sweep them under the carpet. They have to do something to continue living. And so ignoring somebody else and ignoring a sin is their, is their best recourse. Forgiveness is possible among unbelievers, but it is rare. It's so rare. And why is it rare? Because forgiving others is an otherworldly thing. It does not come from our own sinful natures, but from something far removed from us. The ability to forgive comes from God. As there's... Friends, there's nothing, there's nothing that comes close to the restoring power of forgiveness. Only reconciliation through forgiving one another removes past wrongs, and only by forgiveness can relationships be fully restored. There is nothing that characterizes a Christian so well as the attitude of forgiveness, because our example, Christ, was the epitome of forgiveness. If a person is in Christ, he's a new creation. And he's a person whom God is going to look more and more like Christ every single day. Some of Christ's most astonishing words were those he, he, he said in his dying breath on the cross to, to those who were trying to kill him, to those who did kill him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
Forgiveness is not just woven into the fabric of his being. Forgiveness is the fabric of his being. And friends, we are most like our Lord Jesus when we are forgiving others, when we are forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4.32. This is the reason we forgive, because we have been forgiven. If you are a true Christian, saved by faith in the work of Jesus, then you are forgiven, forgiven of all your sins. This is why we forgive. It says in Colossians 3.13 that we are to be forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. There is nothing so harmful to a relationship than not forgiving. Just imagine where you would be, where you would be in your own relationship with God if he had not forgiven you. Where would you be with God if he had not forgiven you? Maybe think about a relative or a neighbor who you know is not born again, who you know is not with Christ, and think about their position before God. Where are they at without this forgiveness? Now now think about your personal relationships. Start with your spouse if you have one. What can keep you two apart longer than anything for longer than anything else? What can keep you apart? It's not the sin that first separated you. That takes a moment or a short time. But what keeps you apart is a lack of forgiveness, an unwillingness to forgive. Sin damages relationships, but unforgiveness, it tears them apart. But forgiveness, when given, when showed freely, transforms and heals what sin has hurt. Think of, think of a boat. You know, it's like um, sin is like capsizing a boat. It takes the boat, turns it upside down, and, and unforgiveness is like getting on the back of that boat, taking an oar, and trying to move. You're not going to go very far very fast, and you're probably going to be going in circles. But forgiveness rights the boat, starts the motor, and gets you going again. We are people in desperate need of being forgiven, and we are in desperate need of forgiving one another. And Jesus is the perfect example of forgiveness. Is also the perfect teacher to address this subject. So in our passage today in Matthew 18, we're going to learn from Jesus three features of biblical forgiveness so that we might be motivated to forgive one another. We'll see three features of biblical forgiveness. Open, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 18. And while you turn there, let me give you a little bit of a context for this passage. Chapter 18 itself is all about the child of God and God's thoughts on his children's sin. It starts off in the beginning of the chapter with a strict woe, a strict woe of judgment pronounced on anyone who would tempt his children to sin. It then continues in verses 8 and 9 about the importance of cutting off sin, right? It's the passage that talks about if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Then in 10 to 14, we see God's reaction to those who sin and go astray. God's reaction, he would leave the 99 behind to go rescue the one sinner who leaves, who goes astray. We see his love and care for his own children. And then in verses 15 to 20, we have our famous passage on church discipline. When you hear Matthew 18, this is probably the passage that comes to mind, right? You think about the church discipline passage. Jesus covers and gives the steps for what it's like to discipline a a member of the church body who is in sin. And so thus far, in chapter 18, Jesus has summarily covered some major practical issues regarding sin in the life of the born-again children. And now let's read our text, starting in verse 21. Chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as 77 times? 
sorry, I I read that wrong. As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So ends the reading of God's word. We start, we jump right into our first point of today in verses 21 and 22, that forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is unlimited. Peter, he's the inquisitive one in the group. You've, you know him. You know him well. Peter's always the one asking questions, sticking his foot in the mouth, going up to Jesus, and, and, and has an idea or a question or a thought or a statement. And here he comes, he comes up to Jesus, possibly even interrupting this sermon with a question, with a question for the Lord. He's been listening to the sermon, and, and he's learned now that what God has done uh, for, for him regarding sin, and he, he's learned a lot about sin, but what about when people sinned against him, Right? He was a fisher, man. He had a business. We, you know, he had a wife. He'd been forgiven again. Sorry, he'd been sinned against a lot. What about when he was sinned against, Jesus? What about when I get sinned against? So here he comes up to Jesus and asks him this question. Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Well, Peter knew the Jewish laws that was in place. Jews were supposed to forgive. Jews were expected to forgive. They had an oral law in place that said they needed to forgive their brother three times. Three times. One, uh, one writing that was found by Rabbi uh, Yosef ben Judah says this. If a brother sins against you once, forgive him. A second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. But a fourth time, do not forgive him. Other writings tell the sinning person not to even bother asking for forgiveness a fourth time. You shouldn't even bother. And the Jews got this idea from the book of Amos. And in Amos, we see God showing forgiveness three times to a Gentile nation. And then after they they continually bell, the fourth time, he punishes the nation. And so the Jews took what was God's corporate punishment on a Gentile nation and applied it to individuals. If God only forgives three times, who were we to forgive a fourth time? They even said it was presumptuous to forgive somebody a fourth time because God did not. Well, they took this text obviously wrong and, and Peter, or Peter coming up to Jesus wants to know if this was the Lord's, the Lord's plan, if this is what God wanted. 
But knowing that Jesus had a knack for disregarding the oral law of the Pharisees and contradicting them, he ups the ante. He says seven times. He doubles three and adds one just for good measure. And he asks Jesus the question, Lord, do I have to forgive him even up to seven times? Notice that this is a personal question. It's personal. He himself comes up to Jesus and he even asks in the personal, Lord, I, me, he's not giving a hypothetical. He's saying, I, me, do, do I need to do this? And that's very commendable. Peter wants to know God's position on forgiveness. He wants to know God's thoughts on reconciling wrongs with his brother. And we need to have that thought in our mind too, right? Do you have this question on your mind? Do you want to know what God's thoughts are on reconciling one to another? Many times when we come to to something and we're not sure, it's a good thing to go to God and ask him, God, what do you think? What do you think, God? And here Peter comes with this pressing question on his mind to ask God. Perhaps recently he'd been sinned against and really wanted to know. Maybe it was the fourth time and he wanted to know, do I have to forgive my wife again? Maybe as he walked out the door to go on another trip around Galilee with Jesus, she slammed it like, you're always going and following him. doesn't matter that he was the son of God and the, you know, the, he was one of his main disciples. Maybe she was mad. He had to forgive her a fourth time. Perhaps you're in the same boat. Same boat as him, disgruntled with your spouse or angry at a friend or relative. Maybe your boat is capsized and you're trying to paddle with just one oar. You need to ask this question right now. What do you think, God? Well, he's glad you asked. Look at verse 22. Jesus says directly to Peter and directly to you, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. I remember digging ditches in my yard growing up. Uh, my dad, my parents have three kids. My sister's actually here with us today. And, and we were slave labor every Saturday. We, we, we often, <laughs> he's giving me a big, huh? We, we often remodeled homes. My parents moved around a few times and we'd remodel the homes. And I remember having to dig out in the yard a few times to install water pipes of some kind. And I can remember one time in the yard at Big Valley in Polsbo in the green grass, he had me digging a, a ditch a foot deep going out into the yard and and like all teenagers, especially younger ones, we want to know how much work we actually are expected to do. How much do we have to do? And so an appropriate question for me that day would have been, how far do you want me to dig this ditch? I'm going to go six feet? And he could have responded, look, just go 66 feet. I'll let you know when you're done. I'll let you know how far to go. Well, Jesus employs the same numerical tactic here with Peter. From seven to 77. He's not saying... Do it 77 times, right? It would be ridiculous for me to actually take a tape measure out and measure 66 feet. It's the same thing. He's saying, just keep forgiving. Don't worry about how much. Now, you've noticed that I'm saying 77. You've probably heard 70 times 7. Um, the Greek's a little confusing. Some translations haven't helped. Uh, it's best to see 77, not 70 times 7, 490, but it really doesn't matter because the principle's the same. The principle stays the same. Jesus is not asking Peter to keep track of how many sins have been committed against him, but to just keep on forgiving. That's the principle. And we, we've even seen that to keep track of wrongs against our, our spouse or against somebody else, to keep a record of them, is even unloving. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. We need to, to forgive unlimited amounts. And that's the principle. We just keep forgiving our brother who sins against us. There is no limit to how much God expects us to forgive one another. 
the godly Christian will never allow his forgiveness to be outdone by his brother's sins. We must develop this unlimited forgiveness. Think of little children. I love this church. There's little kids everywhere. And it is so easy to forgive a little child when they sin, right? Parents almost do it instinctively. When your child, a three or four-year-old, sins against you, you almost instinctively forgive them. Because children are immature. They're uninformed. They're inexperienced. Sometimes as they grow up, we even expect them to sin at times. We even expect this, and we, we want them to grow and learn, so we forgive them. It's easy to forgive them. Like, who holds a grudge against a three-year-old, right? That's just ridiculous. You can't do that. Well, think of forgiving others this way. Believers are all children of God. Though you may be in your 40s or 50s or beyond, you are still God's child. Every single one of us, in some ways, is immature or inexperienced or uninformed. And so is that person who has sinned against you. We are all that way. So learn to forgive. Make it instinctive, like a parent to a child. And most importantly of all, make your forgiveness unlimited. May it know no bounds. We come now then to the bulk of our passage, the parable. And Jesus here goes from his brief one-on-one interaction with Peter, and he turns back to the crowd. He turns back to everyone to, to finish his sermon with a parable on forgiveness. And we've got to remember something about parables before we jump into it. Parables teach one point. The whole story illustrates one concept. Whenever we read parables, we've got to be careful that we don't get too deep into the details. We don't, we don't want to get into these details and, and, and make some subliminal or secondary messages out of them. Parables teach one truth. They elucidate one point. And Jesus gives us this parable because he wants to make one thing very clear to his followers. For the person who is forgiven by God, forgiveness is mandatory. For the person who is forgiven by God, forgiving others is mandatory. And that's our second point found in the parable here. So let's take a look at it. It begins in verse 23, saying, Comparing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And one, was, one of his servants was brought to him who owed him a ton of money, an astronomical amount. It says 10,000 talents. One talent was equivalent to 75 pounds of gold, and it would take 15 to 20 years of work for a common laborer to make this much money, to pay out one talent. So this was a massive debt. Um, one preacher, I found one preacher who in the 1990s did a, a study to try and see how much this was put into our currency today, and he estimated it to be about $3,150,000,000. Another preacher put this in terms of Israel's yearly tax revenue that they owed to Rome in the days of Jesus, in the, in the same day this message would have been preached. The yearly payment of tax for the entire country of Israel to Rome was 900 talents, the entire country. It would take 11 years of taxation to pay off this debt of 10,000 for an entire country. Jesus was using this to show the impossibility of repaying a debt. He couldn't have used a bigger number. The the, the number was 10,000. That was the biggest number that they really use. And the talent was the biggest currency. It'd be like saying a a billion hundred dollar bills, something in that regard. The, The point is that the man's debt is immeasurable and unpayable. And this unpayable debt represents the sin that every man owes to God. The debt of sin that every man owes to God. 
it represents just how immeasurable your guiltiness is before a perfect and holy God. Friends, what is 10,000 talents when compared to our burden of debt to God? Ask yourself, along with me, how much do I owe you, God? How great is my debt? The weight of your sins is beyond what you can pay on your own. It is irreconcilable. And the penalty for your sins is just. It's eternal damnation, separated for God from ever, being constantly in the fire that is never quenched and tortured by the worm that does not die. That is what every sinner deserves. Well, the poor slave, this poor slave in our parable deserves this as well. And so according to the custom of the king's day, the slave and his possession and his family were to be sold. It's nowhere near the worth of 10,000 talents that he owed, but something had to be recouped. Some monetary value had to be recouped. Well, the servant, upon hearing such a judgment, fell on his knees and begged for mercy. Have patience with me. I will repay you. This man didn't even know what to ask. He couldn't repay him. He should have asked for forgiveness, and instead he's asking for patience. And that's a common thing for humans, for man to come to God and to ask him for patience when really we cannot pay our debt. It's a wrong-headed directive, but it's typical. It's typical of man. Think of Herodias' daughter who foolishly asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter when she could have had half Herod's kingdom. We do the same thing when, when we come to God asking for patience instead of forgiveness. We come far short of God's giving potential. This man needed forgiveness of his debt. And you, if you're an unsafe sinner, you need forgiveness of your sin debt. Don't ask for patience. You cannot make things right before God in time. Rather, believe in Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. Acts 10.43 says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God will take pity. God will forgive. And that's exactly what takes place in our parable. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. Just like our God, so quick and ready to forgive the repentant sinner. But now the plot quickly changes. The parable takes a new shape, and the contrast here is stark. The change is sudden. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. The second servant only owed a hundred denarii. A, denar- a denarius was a man, a, a one day's wage. So a hundred denarii was about three months of, of wages, three months of, of payment. And put in today's standards, maybe for a la- day labor, it'd be about $6,000. Six grand maybe is what this guy owed. So it's no chump change. It's not like he could pull a hundred out of his pocket and the man would then forgive him. It was a little bit of work, but nothing, nothing compared to the three billion something dollars this guy owed had just been forgiven of. Well, this forgiven servant, instead of forgiving in return, he seized this man who owed him just six grand, who owed him just a hundred in area, and he began to choke him. He physically attacked him. According to some ancient writers, it was not uncommon for a creditor to actually strangle a man, to wrench his debtor's neck so that blood ran from his nose. It was nasty. That was common in their day. And here we have the man just relieved of an unpayable debt attacking and strangling the neck 
of somebody who just owes him a small amount in comparison. This is unthinkable. And this is what Jesus is getting at. It's unthinkable. And it's touching at the point of the whole parable right here. A Christian who is unwilling to forgive his fellow man is unthinkable. Anyone who has been forgiven as much as Christ certainly must forgive anyone who sins against them. To, do so, to not do so is unconscionable. It's unthinkable not to forgive when you've been forgiven as much as you have. The parable continues in verse 29. And the second servant here is pleading for patience. It's the exact cry of the first servant, almost verbatim. But instead, the servant refused, and he personally saw to it that this man was thrown in jail. He took him there, he put him in the jail cell, had the guard do it, and watched the door slam in his face. No forgiveness whatsoever. Well, this, this unthinkable action made its way back to the king's ears, and he summoned the wicked servant. And he said to him, You wicked servant. Verse 32. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his anger, and in anger, his master delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And that's the point of the parable. If you have been forgiven an infinite amount, you must forgive everyone who sins against you. If you've been forgiven by God of all your sins, forgiving one another is mandatory. Jesus doesn't want anyone to miss this. He doesn't want anyone to miss this point. So he clarifies it in verse 35. Look at verse 35. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you not, do not forgive your brother from your heart. Strong words. Strong words, huh? In, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said something very similar. He said, For if you forgive others for your transgressions, sorry, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Pretty, we, we wish Jesus hadn't said these things, right? These are troubling statements. These are very troubling. And, and part of the trouble is that at first glance, it appears that he's, he's, giving, he's saying works-based salvation, right? Like if you forgive somebody else, then you'll be forgiven. Or at the very least, it, once you've been saved, if you, if you stop forgiving, God will stop forgiving you. Like, uh, like if you're saved by grace, but then don't act right, God will cancel his forgiveness and throw you in hell. That's kind of what it sounds like at first glance, right? But we know that can't be right. We know that's not the right interpretation. And we know this for several reasons, several reasons. And I'm not going to go into them, but there are multiple ways people try and get around to it get around this. We try and get around this in some way. Um, one way of saying that, that this is how the old covenant worked. This is how it was in the old covenant, right? The new covenant hadn't come in yet, so this is old covenant. And the new covenant, which we're in, doesn't work this way. Another, uh, some people, another way of getting around this is that Jesus didn't really mean what he said. And we know we can't take that approach. Um, and, and one other one is to think that the second punishment with the, regarding the torturers uh, does not refer to eternal damnation, just the pain and suffering and the, the tortures in this life. That's what it's referring to. But, but none of these are acceptable. None of these are acceptable solutions. What we do need to recognize, though, with this parable is that it's teaching one thing. And he, Jesus is not giving us the full gospel message here in this story. He's just giving us one aspect of it. What he says is true. There is an unbreakable connection between God's forgiveness of us 
and our forgiveness of others. He is not saying that we are saved by forgiving others or that once we have salvation, we can lose it if we don't forgive. He's not saying that, but Jesus is saying that whatever else is involved and a great deal more is involved, but he is saying that forgiveness must be a part of what it means to be a Christian. Forgiveness must be a part of what it means to be a Christian. This summer with the high school group, we've been talking a lot about what it means to be a Christian. We've been going through the book of 1 John, which which gives significant and multiple proofs of what it means to be a believer. And at retreat, we looked at the gospel and we looked at sanctification, what what the Christian life looks like, how you can look at your own life and see God's working in your life to see that you have been changed. We've looked at a lot of tests to to see what it means to to be saved and a lot of... uh, a lot of evidences of salvation, and another one of these evidences is forgiveness. Is forgiveness. It is the evidence of a changed life. If you are forgiving one another, your life has been changed by forgiveness. And yet, if we do not forgive others, we show that we are not forgiven and are not God's children. Friends and family, we have been forgiven much. Let us forgive one another. And let us do it from our hearts. Third and final point is that forgiveness is from the heart. This is the last and the shortest of all. Just look at the very end of verse 35. The last three words, it's tacked onto the end there. It's the little phrase, from your heart. Genuine forgiveness is from the heart. It takes a volitional act to forgive someone. It takes a volitional act to forgive. And it comes from a heart ready to overlook a wrong. It's true. Sometimes we can't forgive somebody if they haven't asked us for forgiveness. We can't verbalize, excuse me, we can't verbalize that forgiveness if they haven't come to us and asked for it. Think about the forgiveness God has for us. God does not give give us forgiveness unless we come to him and repent of our sins. And then he demonstrates that forgiveness. But God's heart is one of forgiveness. He stands there ready to forgive the sinner that repents. Likewise for us, Though we may never be able to formally forgive someone who never asks for it, we can forgive them in our hearts. And sometimes that's all we can do. Think back to the opening story with Solomon. Recall Solomon. It's unlikely that his Muslim attackers will ever come to him for forgiveness, right? But he's already given it in his heart. That's the heart of God, ready to forgive. Make it your heart as well. A number of years ago, I was working through forgiving someone and had received a worksheet to aid me in that process. This worksheet was very helpful, actually. It took me to tons of places in the Bible that talked about forgiveness, and, and it really helped me to understand what it means to forgive my brother. I was really thankful for this worksheet. But at the very end, the very last question at the end of the worksheet had a statement on it that caught my attention. It threw me off, and I can't remember it word for word, uh, but it was something like this. Are you ready to forgive? Simply say the words, I forgive you. You don't have to feel it in your heart. You don't have to want to forgive. You just have to express it. And that last statement caught me by surprise. You don't have to feel it in your heart. You don't have to want to forgive. I remember sitting at my desk thinking, wait, is that right? Shouldn't it say the exact opposite of that? And yes, it should have. It should be saying the exact opposite of that. And because... 
because this, this caught my attention, I, I, I sat there, I, I reclined back in my chair, and I was pondering, I started thinking about the gospel, how God had forgiven me, and what Christ had done for me on the cross. And all of a sudden, the gospel rushed through my entire being. Jesus had given up his position in heaven and willingly came down to earth to live a life, a perfect life, but as a lowly human. He lived a life without sin and then sacrificially offered himself up on the cross to die in my place. The guilt I deserve was put on him and he died for me. I was the guilty one. I deserved death. But Jesus shed his own blood to forgive me for my sins. The weight of my sin crashed over me again at that moment. Just how culpable and guilty I was before God. It struck me. I was so wicked by nature and by choice. There is no way I could repay my debt to God on my own. But God had shown me mercy. God had wanted to forgive me. He felt it deep in his heart, so much so that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross to save me from my sins and to save you from your sins if you've come to him. Our sins were put upon Jesus and his righteousness is put upon us. We are forgiven. I was forgiven. Life pulsed through my veins anew as I sat there that day at my desk. I was set free from all my sins by God himself. And how much more must I be willing to do the same to those who wronged me? Immediately, I felt it in my heart. I wanted to forgive. I went to my bed, got down on my knees, and just exploded in prayers of forgiveness to, God, or to these people before God. It was a beautiful, memorable time. My heart was changed by God to forgive. This forgiveness worksheet that at the very end had tried to lead me astray instead led me to the foot of the cross, and I felt God's forgiveness anew in my heart. I was then motivated to forgive like never before. Let that be your story too. When you harbor unforgiveness, remember the full penalty due your sin that was forgiven by Christ on the cross. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Charles Wesley, 1742. Friends and family, consider the weight of your sin and your wickedness before Christ saved you and then bask in the joy of the forgiveness that is yours at salvation. And then, with Christ as your example, go and forgive. That is the heart of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we are overwhelmed when we consider the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. What we owe, the debt that we owe, is immeasurable. And yet you willingly gave up your life to die for us. That we, if we come to you, Lord, in repentance and faith, would you forgive us all of our sins. You remove the penalty that is ours. You remove the sins and you not only remove it, but you give us your righteousness you take our filthy rags and you make them clean and then you give us your righteousness, oh God. What a beautiful thing. 
Father, may we remember this every day, your forgiveness towards us, and may we be motivated by it to forgive one another. May we be changed by this message, Lord. May we go from here and forgive one another, instinctively and unlimited, Lord, from our heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray, that man who died for us. In his name, amen.